0: Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. So, we discuss order of magnitude, atmospheric boundary layers laminar versus turbulent flows, different parameters of turbulence, chaos, randomness, viscosity, and applications for drones, simulation software, nature, and you. Let's go. Austin Lecrier is a master student at McGill University in mechanical engineering. His thesis centers around turbulent flows with a particular interest in how the nature of the turbulence changes with varying initial wind tunnel conditions. This information is useful in testing aerial vehicles if the nature of the flow inside the wind tunnel can mimic the types of flow observed in nature. Using specific techniques, the properties of the turbulence itself can be accurately measured and then used to test and develop aerial vehicles. Outside of school, Austin has represented his school while traveling to China and Italy, and Austin and I actually got lost together in Milan back in the day, During his undergraduate degree, Austin was involved with the McGill Rocket Team, where he designed, built, and successfully fired a hybrid rocket engine. So this guy's got a pretty tremendous background in engineering, and we're going to tap into his knowledge base right now. So without further ado, Austin, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast.
1: Very good, Jeremy. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, this is super fun. I don't think we've actually spoken face-to-face in probably seven years, something like that. Just for a bit of background, me and Austin used to row together at Dawson College Since then, I don't think either of us has really continued much rowing, but we've gone on slightly different academic routes. And uh, well, here we are today. So it's fun how things work out like that.
1: Yeah, that's it. Got to keep those connections.
0: Exactly. So you have a full background in mechanical engineering. You did your undergraduate in mechanical engineering, which is a four-year program, right?
1: That's correct. And I
0: actually ended up
1: doing it in five. I did the internship program. So I did two internships during my time and I did the aeronautical concentration so i'm uh, I have a wide array of knowledge of many things mechanical engineering
0: okay well so i can tell that there's been this this fusion then of your aeronautical addition in your master's research because you you talk here in your intro about uh, different kinds of aircraft and aerial vehicles so just so the listeners know what kind of aerial vehicles are you studying
1: so i don't study the aerial vehicles directly i study means of testing the vehicles and validating different controllers that you could use on the vehicles. And just to be clear for the listeners, uh, it's mostly drones, you know, the, uh, the quad rotor variety. My group, my research group, does quite a bit of research on those. And I'm coming in from the side of designing a way to test them reliably in different conditions.
0: So do you know Aton Bolka? No. Okay. He was a guest we had on the podcast a couple of months ago, and he was working on quad rotors as well in a robotics lab at McGill.
1: Oh, uh, interesting. It's uh, certainly a hot topic right now. I mean, the affordability of drones has, you know, increased a lot. I know 10, 15 years ago, it would cost upwards of $80,000 for a what? single drone. And now some people are making their own, like we're cutting acrylic and attaching motors and controllers to them just to measure different parameters. You know, the ease of access now is pretty incredible compared to
0: what it once was. What is it about quad that is so enticing?
1: So it's basically the minimum amount of rotors that you need to make a drone that you can fully control, have it hover stationary in air, have it spin on its own axis without moving forward or backwards. And they've just gained a lot of popularity. I saw a report that said that the drone sector is going to surpass several billion dollars in the next few years. Interesting. The quote right here, in the next few years, UAVs are forecast to have a market value of over a hundred billion
0: USD. So, this isn't a podcast about investing and finances, but should we start investing in drone companies right now is like Is that a dangerous move to make, or are, are a lot of them going bankrupt or is, is is this just like a huge booming field we should get into
1: i don't want to give out any advice people can uh, <laughs> can do their own research. I just know it's a, it's a booming industry, and that's why so many academics are you know looking into it quite seriously like my group is a fluids group, and we're really applying fluids to aerial vehicles, to, to drones.
0: So let's get into the part of drone research that you're involved in, which, as you just said, is fluids. So you have a background in engineering, and of course, you must have extensive knowledge of physics. So fluid dynamics would be the subdiscipline of physics that you're dealing with? Yeah, that's right. So
1: in mechanical engineering, fluid dynamics is definitely a pillar of engineering, you know, you have fluids, heat transfer, you have the design aspect, you have the materials aspect. So that's more the heat transfer fluids side. And during my undergrad, I did uh, many fluids courses and I felt like there was something I wanted to pursue into a master's. And what I do specifically is I'm attempting to replicate turbulence and fluids that you would encounter in nature. So let's say you're flying a drone way up in the sky Well, normal wind tunnels, they can't produce the type of fluids or the type of turbulence, I should say, that's present way up high in the sky when you're flying the drone. So normally when you have a prototype for a drone, you don't want to put that piece of equipment a thousand feet up. You want to be able to test it in a closed environment that you can tweak each variable independently and you don't want there to be a high risk for the drone
0: what's the difference between the air that is a thousand feet up and the air that I'm breathing right now? Sure. That's a great question. In terms of turbulence, of course. Yeah.
1: So that's something I wanted to touch on. There's something called the atmospheric boundary layer. So if you go high enough in the sky, you're exposed to this boundary layer. And within the boundary layer, there are turbulent scales that are orders of magnitude larger than what you would see in the air near the streets. So let's say, for example, you have wind blowing past the building. Yeah. Well, the turbulent scales that you're gonna see from the air flowing past the building are gonna be much, much smaller than what you would encounter high in the sky.
0: What are you encountering high in the sky? Do you have things bigger than buildings that the air is flowing past? I mean, what's going on here?
1: You can think of it as the atmospheric boundary layer is interacting with the buildings and those scales are becoming smaller because of that interaction. So when you have air that's simply In the atmospheric boundary layer undisturbed its length scales and time scales are on the order of you know minutes and hours and meters and kilometers whereas the normal air that we would encounter on the street it's much much
0: smaller hold on a second so just to get a better idea of this temporal and spatial element of turbulence you're saying that there's more turbulence happening where there is where there are no buildings i was under the impression from the very minimal knowledge i know of turbulence that it's due to like you're saying these kind of interactions, right? Small scale turbulence, at least, is the result of small scale interactions, but what kind of interactions that are happening if there are no buildings?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So a, a good way to look at it, without getting too deep into the technical aspect of turbulence, which is what I, I primarily study. I've done several courses in turbulence and I, I'm kind of getting into the nitty gritty, so mm-hmm. to say, but from a very high level, what would happen if you have air flowing past buildings is you would see larger turbulence intensities. So meaning the fluctuations of the turbulence would be higher because of the interactions, but the length scales and time scales will be slightly less. But if you're in the atmospheric boundary layer, now you're kind of looking at the entire earth as an interaction. So now you're looking at time scales and length scales related to the earth rather than, you know, just the
0: building that you're looking at. Okay. yeah, that's fascinating.
1: So it's, it's quite interesting. So relating back to my research, I'm looking at different means of producing larger length and time scales within the confines of a wind tunnel. So the ultimate goal would be to be able to tweak the type of turbulence being produced by the wind tunnel to allow for this drone testing.
0: Okay. All right. Because in in normal street environments where we have buildings and such, we don't get these, these longer time scales and larger spatial scales of turbulence. That's right. And
1: not only that, if you're just in an urban environment or anywhere, really, you don't know what the type of turbulence looks like. You have no way of measuring that because the measuring techniques that you use for measuring turbulence are very, very delicate, to put it lightly. So, for example, you would not be able to accurately measure the turbulence if you're flying a drone around in the air. You can't just put a turbulence probe on your drone to see what air it's being exposed to. It's a, a very delicate process that you can use in a wind tunnel. You know, I can kind of use, I, I want to say a feed-forward loop, but once you figure out what your wind tunnel doing, if you can mimic the conditions that you're operating at when you're measuring the turbulence, you can just take out your probes and then put in a drone and assume, you know, you're getting similar turbulence levels and similar length scales and time scales in the wind
0: tunnel. Hey, thanks for tuning in to episode 21. If you're a graduate student yourself and think you'd be a good candidate to be a guest on this podcast, shoot us a message at abstractcast at gmail.com. We'd be happy to connect and see if we could set something up. If you know somebody who's a graduate student who might be a good candidate as well, please send this podcast to them, give us their information, send our information to them, do what you got to do. And For now, let's get back to the episode. I want to hear what Austin has to say. So what is this turbulence probe doing? And an add-on, if you could just maybe quickly touch on this before you get into what it is that the probes are doing, is how does turbulence differ from a wind?
1: So there is turbulence within wind so wind is by nature turbulent okay so it would just be different levels of turbulence different mean velocities of the flow but wind is definitely turbulent it's turbulent by nature i mean normally you distinguish flows by saying they're either laminar or turbulent the majority of flows that we see in nature are turbulent it's very rare to see a laminar flow in nature if you see a waterfall while the interaction at the bottom of the waterfall is turbulent. When you see a plane flying through the air, it's flying through turbulent air. So measuring the turbulence and seeing the turbulence levels of a flow are very valuable from an engineering perspective, because it allows you to properly design
0: for that case. I would imagine this comes into the picture when you're talking about building bridges as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I th- there's a very famous case where they didn't account for the fluctuations in velocity for the um, oscillations that that brings and the, the, the birds completely collapse. There's a very famous engineering example, but uh, it's definitely something that you have to take into consideration. And it's something that simulation softwares do quite well. There are different turbulence models used in ANSYS and different simulation softwares. And really, if, if there's anything that I can find out in my research that's novel, the biggest application to that discovery would be to correct something, a small parameter in a simulation software like, like Ansys, just to give a very brief example.
0: Sure, how many different parameters are there when we're talking about turbulence? Is it hundreds, is it billions, is it three? <laughs> Let's go with uh, hundreds in a uh, simulation <sighs> okay. software.
1: The, the issue is turbulence isn't very well understood because it's by nature chaotic and random you'll never fully reproduce a turbulent flow, but you can reproduce the averages that you see within the flow. You can reproduce the average speed, the average turbulence intensity, the average length scale, but you'll never reproduce a flow exactly because of its chaotic nature.
0: Every every turbulence flow is unique. It's like a little snowflake.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: The, you know, there's never two alike. Okay. That makes sense. I guess, you know, we're talking about fluids, but I'm, I'm imagining like at the smallest scale, there are particle interactions that produce turbulence. Is that the case?
1: So it's funny that you mentioned the smallest scale. In turbulence, we call those the Kolmogorov scales of turbulence. So you can think of it as the smallest eddy that will occur in a flow before all of the energy dissipates
0: to viscosity. Whoa, wait, wait, hold, hold, hold on a second. A lot of our listeners, a lot of our listeners have no background in this. I have a bit of background in physics, but you're going to need to explain a bit of those words there, especially viscosity. That's new okay. One. Sorry. So you
1: can think of viscosity as if you look at honey and you look at water, right? Water, it's very easy to stir, but honey is very difficult to stir. Yeah. Right? Honey has a higher viscosity than water. So you can kind of think of it as the thickness of the water or how the water flows. I think a test for viscosity is having a particular length of like a piece that's a certain length at a certain angle at a certain height, and you allow the fluid to flow from the top of this piece to the bottom and measuring the time it takes to get from the top of the piece to the bottom of the piece is a good measurement of the viscosity.
0: Like a slide.
1: Like a slide almost right. for fluid. So you can imagine water would flow very fast. Honey would flow very slowly.
0: And humans would flow at a different speed. <laughs> if, we sh- if we shuttled ourselves down a slide. That is correct. Depending on if we were sliding on honey or water. That's right. That's right. Exactly. You would probably slide faster on water than with honey. Amazing. Uh, so
1: getting back to uh, you know, what I was saying. So mm-hmm. you can think of viscosity as being the stickiness of the water, uh, mm-hmm. the fluid, I should say. Mm-hmm. So the next thing to think about would be, okay, I have fluid flowing in air somewhere. Well, fluid likes to spin around as it flows. I don't know if you've ever had a sink full of water and then you try to fill up the sink from the tap and you can kind of see, you know, the plume of water entering the stationary water and it kind of swirls up. You see a lot of swirls. in water another word for their swirls are eddies okay so the way that you can look at turbulence is at the largest length scale which i mentioned quite a bit previously you have large eddies and then as the turbulence stops to move as the fluid stops moving those eddies dissipate into smaller and smaller eddies
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so they get tinier and tinier and then the tiniest eddies that we can observe Once they dissipate, all of their energy goes to viscosity. It goes to that thing that's preventing you from moving. Think of how difficult it would be to stir, you know, a jar of honey.
0: Hold on a second. Is there a relationship here between like that thing we used to do as kids when we'd be in like a small pool and we'd all swim in one direction and then try and swim against that countercurrent we produced? Yeah,
1: sure. Yeah. So you're producing turbulence. You're producing a vortex and that vortex is slowly dissipating.
0: So it gets easier and easier to swim against it
1: exactly that's correct yeah so this thing that i just described is actually called the energy cascade within turbulence
0: oh my god so so turbulent wait a second the movement of the eddies produces the turbulence because pushing against an eddy is more difficult than pushing against still water sure yeah you can look at that you can look at it like that okay
1: I just pulled up the most famous poem in Turbulence. It was written in 1922. <laughs> I and love it. it. It goes like this. Big worlds have little worlds that feed on their velocity and lesser worlds have lesser worlds and so on to viscosity. <laughs> I love it. So I, I actually have a Turbulence textbook next to me and it, it's, it's written in that, uh, in that textbook. I love that. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so that was a quote from Richardson, uh, 1922. Okay.
0: Thank you. That's amazing. That's a great addition. I appreciate that. Okay. So viscosity is the thing that results or, okay, but hold on a second. So
1: here before on that thought, viscosity is a property of the fluid, Mm -hmm. not of the flow. Okay. Most of the things that I've been talking about up to now, the length scale, the turbulence intensity, they're properties of the flow, not of the fluid. Okay. Meaning Mm -hmm. for air, you can have many different length scales and time scales and turbulence intensities, but you can only have one viscosity. Air has, for a given temperature and pressure, one viscosity.
0: What are the units of viscosity?
1: It's actually a Pascal second.
0: Ah, so there's there's the time in there and there's also some pressure? Exactly, yes. Does a Pascal include something like distance? Yeah, so
1: uh, Pascal, uh, by definition, is just a force over an area. So yeah, you, you have length, and you have, you, you, you have all of the base units
0: mm-hmm. in there uh, because Good. of the Pascal. Just want to make sure that we had time and space involved in our fluid flow here.
1: Well, that, that would make sense,
0: correct? Because we're talking about time and space right now, <laughs> and change over that. I assume a lot of the mathematics you're using is
1: calculus-based? It's all calculus-based, yeah, that's okay. correct. So it's uh, quite heavily into calculus when you're looking at the Navier-Stokes equations. So, I'm glad
0: you brought those up. Yeah. yeah,
1: so Na- Navier-Stokes, the Navier-Stokes equations are the base equations for fluids. Uh, there's no known, known solution to them. There's the millennial prize, where if you actually solve the Navier-Stokes equations and can generate a closed form analytical solution, you would win a million dollars. A university put out excelings to, to solve them and no, no one has done it
0: yet. Come on, listeners,
1: let's go, Millennium Challenge. Very difficult. On you. <laughs> um, so everything is rooted within those equations. Theoretically, those equations can describe the exact motion of any flow. But I, I don't know if you remember earlier, I said that turbulence by nature is chaotic, which yeah. means it's very prone to initial conditions. So the simplest chaotic system would be a double pendulum. If you start it from the same spot a million times, you'll see a million different paths because you'll never get it perfectly to that initial condition.
0: Hold on. Double pendulum as in like two, like literally two pendulums swinging side by side together?
1: No, you can think of one pendulum
0: and then another pendulum swinging from that pendulum. Oh, okay, so pendulum, I'm imagining a, a little sphere maybe at the bottom of it, and then a str- another string with another sphere coming down. Yeah, Oh, so and then let it's, it go. rather than a string, the most uh, popular case is using just a uh, rigid bar. There's no like angle change then between the, those two pe- pendulums, but there is, there is a lot of turbulence going on.
1: There's a lot of cha- chaotic motion going on, which is how you would describe the motion of turbulence. This is just a side example just to kind of picture what chaos is.
0: I feel like I don't know what chaos is, though. I I feel like I still don't know. Is that normal?
1: That is perfectly normal. It is, uh, it's precise scientific definition differs from the way that we use it in everyday
0: life. Has to do with entropy? Or no? Or is that a different kind of chaos? Everything has to do with entropy. <laughs> ha! That's the title of this episode. Episode 21, Everything Has to Do With Entropy, featuring Austin Lake
1: it, it would be a stretch to, to relate the two in, in such general terms, yeah. but
0: what I mean is it's impossible
1: to predict because you'll never truly know the actual initial
0: conditions. And I'm sorry if this is getting very deep. It is getting deep, but my question is, what do you mean initial conditions? Like You mean like the Big Bang, the air around us, the air that planes are flying through, the honey that I'm stirring. What do you mean initial condition? Like the honey didn't just come into existence at like some time zero.
1: So, in this context, when I'm talking about initial conditions, I'll go back to the example of the double pendulum, a chaotic mm-hmm. system. Let's say I'm able to accurately measure everything. I can measure the angle of both of the pendulums, the exact height that they're at, everything about them. Well, there's no measurement device that will give me fine enough resolution to make that experiment repeatable because there'd be a very small shift in those initial angles and those initial heights will cause a vastly different path that the two pendulums will take.
0: Oh, this is like, this is like the butterfly effect. Exactly. That's, yeah, exactly.
1: It's exactly the butterfly effect. So because you can never really pinpoint the exact initial condition of the double pendulum, you can't predict what's going to happen. You know, if one small thing changes previously in your life, there's no way to predict how your life would have changed.
0: If, as a listener right now, you decided maybe you weren't going to listen to this episode at that specific time, maybe your whole life would have been a whole lot worse. But luckily, you're here now listening to this, and so your life path is going to change for the better. Exactly. That's for one exactly. way to look at it. For example. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all unbiased here at Abstract, colon, the future of science. Yeah, I just wanted to take a moment to give a quick shout out to our lovely listeners worldwide from Canada, the United States of America, United Kingdom, France, Germany, Hong Kong, Ireland, Haiti, Mexico, Turkey, French, Polynesia, Argentina, Brazil, Mauritius, United Arab Emirates, Singapore, Hungary, Portugal, India, Poland, Taiwan, Japan, Netherlands, South Africa, Sweden, Australia, Romania, Ghana, Vietnam, Peru, Norway, Israel, Spain, Seychelles, Thailand, New Zealand, Chechia, Jordan, Pakistan, South Korea, Bulgaria, Philippines, and Chile. Thank you all. Okay, very cool. So we've definitely gone in about a hundred different directions, which I love because we're, we're kind of extending our tentacles out. This is a very complex topic, but just to kind of bring us back to this idea of turbulence. Now that we have a bit more of a wealth of knowledge as listeners, let's let's think about how we could actually apply what we know now to talk about these aerial vehicles. Right, we're coming back to drones right now. So yeah, sure. So let's
1: come back to more. We talked about the philosophy of turbulence for a little while there and we'll we'll bring it back so just to kind of clarify how you actually measure this stuff Mm -hmm. you, you can imagine right trying to measure a chaotic system that's constantly moving is is quite difficult so the the method that we actually use is called hot wire anemometry
0: okay
1: so the way that it works is you can imagine two little tiny prongs that are spaced about a millimeter
0: apart. Like a baby tuning fork.
1: A baby tuning fork, that's a great example. I'm gonna use that. Please do. So imagine you have a baby tuning fork and at the, the tips of the, this tuning fork, you have a small micron wire, five microns thick. Like a hair or less? It's a fraction of a hair in diameter. Kay. Very, very tiny. You're sending a current to that wire and you're heating it to a specific temperature. Now you have some sort of controller that will keep that wire at that particular temperature. It's using a lot of fancy electronics and feedback loops and really high-tech stuff to keep this small wire at a given temperature. So now you expose that small wire to a fluid flowing past it.
0: Air. Air. Let's say. It's not air. water.
1: You. Th- there are methods of doing this with water. Whoa. It's, you're using a film rather than a wire, but the Mm -hmm. same principle holds. So let's say you burn your your finger and you start blowing on it to try to cool it down. Mm -hmm. If you blow air past something that's heated, you know, heat transfer is going to come into play and the, that thing is going to cool down. So our little tiny wire at the tip of our baby tuning fork is now exposed to air and it's cooling down. But now this fancy device supplying it with power is saying, no, 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 we have to keep this thing at a constant temperature. Mm-hmm. We're going to up the voltage to keep it at that same temperature. Yeah. Well, now we expose it to a different type of air, like to a lower velocity, and it starts to warm up again. Because the wire is so thin, it cools down incredibly fast. So then the controller can say, oh, well, now we don't need as much uh, voltage supplied to this little tiny wire. So what I do is while this little wire is exposed to the air, I'm constantly measuring that voltage at a very, very fine time resolution. 75 kilohertz is actually what I measure it. And that's incredibly fast. 75,000 times a second, I'm taking a voltage reading. Yeah. So then what you can do is if you expose that wire to you know, a flow that you know about, then you can calibrate it and you can say, okay, well, this voltage gives me this speed of flow. So then at the end of the day, what you end up with is a very jagged curve centered about
0: the mean flow. And it's this mean flow that you're interested in.
1: Well, the mean flow you can get with a pitot tube. There's nothing special about the mean flow. The special thing are the fluctuations about the mean flow. So, let's say I'm measuring a flow at 5 meters per second. Well, it's never just going to be 5 meters per second. It's going to sometimes be 5.01 or 4.99. Here, you're limited by the resolution of a computer and how it can display, you know, numbers or how accurately this fancy machine I was talking about can output voltage. Mm -hmm. But because we're constantly oscillating about, you know, 5 meters per second, the mean is going to be five meters per second. But now I can look at the properties of those fluctuations. So one thing that's very interesting is looking at the frequency in which these fluctuations occur. So without, okay. without getting too technical, there's a mathematical tool that you can use to look at all of the fluctuation or frequency data within, you know, a time series. Okay. So I basically look at it and I say, Oh, look at all of these frequencies. That I'm seeing. This is pretty interesting. And a lot of really smart people, you know, a long, long time ago looked at it and said, hey, this helps to describe the energy cascade, the way that, you know, big worlds give to little worlds. So it's actually embedded in that frequency fluctuation data, all of those energy, like that energy cascade that I was talking about earlier. It's all encoded in there. So when you're using a hot wire, you can actually measure that and kind of look at it and see what's actually going on within the flow.
0: The frequency of fluctuations gives you information about the velocity and the energy cascade, sorry, the energy cascade of the fluid flow?
1: Yeah, so if you want to, yeah, exactly. So if you want to picture what this curve would look like, it's a very jagged curve full of pointy edges. Mm -hmm. On the y-axis, you know, on the left side axis, you would have velocity. Mm -hmm. And on the x-axis, on the bottom, you would just have time. So it's just the time series of velocity. So, you know, using statistics, you can very easily just take the mean of everything and that's your mean flow. That's just the average flow that you're seeing. Where does your change in voltage come in? The change in voltage is the fluctuation. In what? In the velocity. So the the average, you know, would be, let's say, 5 meters per second. But then the actual signal that I'm reading, the actual, you know, Voltage that's giving me a velocity through calibration is fluctuating about that mean. And it's those fluctuations about the mean that have encoded the energy cascade. Got it. Okay. So you, you can imagine this, this, this is me trying to simplify it. So <laughs> it gets quite complicated when you look at it from you know, an academic point of view. When you, when you start reading these papers that talk about turbulence, there's a very steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. involved. So I I hope I didn't lose any of your of your listeners there. Um, But it, it is quite abstract, but it is useful in an engineering context to be able to see what that energy cascade looks like, look at the nature of the turbulence, and then you can use that to, you know, improve simulations of flows, like ANSYS, like I was talking about. So if we better understand turbulence, we can actually better
0: design and improve uh, these softwares. And this isn't just for drones. This is also potentially for commercial airliners. I-
1: exactly. I mean, they, they're very close to being able to simulate an entire airplane. If not, if they haven't already, they can simulate the entire airplane uh, in one go uh, in ANSYS or in the... Uh, in simulation software. So if we can improve, you know, what we're simulating, like the actual physical understanding of it, we can create better models.
0: Which will improve safety.
1: Yeah, which would improve safety. It would improve, you know, the way that's designed, the efficiency, you know, fuel consumption, the possibilities are endless. Mm -hmm. It's just hard seeing the forest through the trees when you're so caught up in this very precise, turbulent
0: study. That's exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast is we're just, we're just walking into the forest with nothing but a, a nalgene and maybe some, some waterproof matches, pocket knife, very, very small baby tuning fork. That's really, all, that's really all we need. That's all you need to build an airplane, just a small baby tuning fork. And I guess the big takeaway is that you're saving lives by uh, doing master's research. So That's a little bit of a stretch, but let, let's go with that. Ultimately, you know, it, the butterfly effect, right, Austin? That's right. Your research will feed into something larger, which will then feed into lives saved. So I have one final question for you before we wrap up. Then that question is, you can think of this either academically or just in general. I love talking to graduate students. They're at a very interesting time in their lives. We're, you know, around our mid-20s to late 20s, sometimes a little bit older, a little bit younger. And I'm just always curious to get people's takes on life. So I used to ask people, how do you strike work-life balance? I have a new question. We can maybe talk about work life balance later. But the question I have for you now is if you had a thousand people's undivided attention right now, what would you tell them?
1: Honestly, with the current state of affairs in the world, I would tell them everything's gonna be okay.
0: I appreciate that.
1: That's awesome. (laughs) That's that's all that's all I have to say. For a thousand people with a thousand different interests, you know, listening to this podcast. Everything will be okay.
0: Period. Ah, oh, I love it. I was putting a time limit previously when I asked this question. I said you have fifteen seconds, and people would just just blast through the fifteen second mark. But I'm glad that in this particular case, I didn't give the time limit, and you just you just hit the ball right into the right into the center of the park there. Just went with my gut there. Amazing. Thank you, Austin. I I really appreciate this. This has been super fun. I know that we really got into the weeds here, the weeds within the forest. You know, so. I'm really happy that we had the opportunity to talk today and all this stuff is absolutely fascinating. If you're listening right now, thank you for joining us. I really hope that you took something away from this episode, whether you had an interest previously in engineering and science and this kind of you know reignited a, a new kind of interest or if you never had interest before and this is something exciting you'd like to learn more about, that's awesome. So Austin, thank you so much and I hope you have a lovely afternoon and I, I look forward to speaking with you intermittently throughout the rest of your degree. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. No problem. Have an awesome day. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.